Hey everybody, today's episode of Shoppernomics is brought to you by Decision Breakers, experts in behavior-based shopper strategy, insights, and activation. Visit www.decisionbreakers.com to learn more and see how they can help you win the war in store. Welcome to Shoppernomics, the podcast for marketing and insight professionals who want to stay current on the latest understanding of consumer behavior and decision-making. My name is Phil McGee, and I'm speaking today with Mike Storm, Partner and Chief Operations Officer of Neurons, Inc., a Copenhagen-based consumer neuroscience company that applies neuroscience tools and insights to business and social challenges. I saw Mike present at both the New York and Amsterdam Shopper Brain conferences and was really impressed with his work on understanding how shopper brains function when they shop and what it means for both online and retail marketers. Today, we'll be discussing Mike's presentation, which he titled, Understanding and Affecting the Flow of the Customer Journey. But before we begin, Mike, welcome to Shoppernomics. Thank you very much, Phil. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, my pleasure, for sure. And uh, Mike, I gave a brief summary of your bio, but maybe you can build on my introduction and tell us a little bit more about yourself and what you do. Sure. So um, as you said, my name is Mike Storm, and I've been working with Neurons. I'm a partner here, and we have been doing uh, customer insights or consumer insights neuroscience research for the last five and a half years on a commercial base. And before that, we were actually working very academically, uh, trying to understand what is and what happens when people are making decisions. So we were working with CBS at the Copenhagen University uh, Business School in Copenhagen and the Copenhagen University Hospital. And for those two institutions, we had a faculty where we were very closely trying to understand shoppers' responses, responses to pricing, but also various other kind of research. So a long uh, background now in understanding behavioral science and also consumers using neuroscience. Yeah, interesting. And I'm, I'm just curious, how did you find yourself in the field of behavioral science and neuroscience? So I'd say the, the thing was, I was in, uh, in the right place at the right time, to be honest. Um, Thomas, who is the CEO and founder of Neuronsync, he had been working with this field for 10, 15 years when, when we met and, and we started talking about this more in depth. And I had a more related background to, to business and to, to more economics and behavior, where Thomas had more of the scientific neuroscience background. So I really mean that together we formed this kind of tool that could both speak to clients and speak to the commercial world together with understanding the most rigorous and best validated scientific proven methods out there. So that was really how we ended up doing this. And now we've been doing it for five and a half, almost starting our sixth year. So um, yeah, it's very, very interesting. So you're combining the, the, the theorist with the practitioner and together you get the total package. That is what we're, that's what we're aiming for at least. Hey, that's great. No, that's, um, that's important because uh, I know, you know, when I was on the client side, I would, you know, you have to be careful who you work with. Um, because you, you do get those firms that are, you know, really, really kind of on one side on the, on the theory part of it, and, and they're brilliant there, but mm -hmm. they don't really have the, the perspective or the experience or the understanding of the business world in order to, you know, bring it to life and, and offer some uh, really uh, useful applications. And so, um, so you know, by, by having that perspective that you bring to the combination, um, you know, that, that's, that makes it really, really attractive to potential clients. <clears throat> that's correct that's what we've learned so far and and you know so, so you and i have been talking about doing this podcast for a while and, and i'm glad we can finally happen so so thanks for making yourself available um just to start you know all listeners may not be users of neuroscience or, or even familiar with what it is for that matter so would you mind giving a quick primer on neuroscience and how it can be used as a research tool of course. So I think I think the most important part is kind of to take a little step back and think about what we've been doing for many years and how we've been trying to access or assess uh, people's responses or their thoughts or their feelings around products or retail experiences. And many of these tools have been asking questions. And as 
people, we have a really, really hard time both predicting our future behavior, but also memorizing what we just did five minutes ago. And that means that if that is so hard, it's even harder to understand how we feel because that's something we can't control. And it means that we for once can actually try to go in, assess some of these subconscious responses where we can read how people actually respond in the moment. And we can not only read it in the moment, but we can also play it back. And that way we can quantify it and be able to start predicting. So that's really what we're doing with neuroscience is using brain scanners like EEG or eye tracking, which is of course more physiological or biometric, but that too. And together with either GSR as galvanic skin responses or facial coding or any of the other tools that are out there, we can really start looking into what's happening behind the scenes. Very good. And, and, you know, to your point of, we don't always remember. Um, we also don't always know, we, we don't always know the emotions we're experiencing, um, or the things that are influencing our decisions and, and motivating us to make certain choices. So, you know, I, I understand neuroscience can, can help reveal those things as well. Mm -hmm. That is completely correct. Okay. So, so there are many techniques that fall under the banner of, you know, and I'm using air quotes, neuroscience. Um, things like eye tracking, facial coding, response time measurement, things like implicit association techniques, uh, electroencephalography uh, or, or EEG, and, and functional magnetic resonance imaging or fMRI. Which of these do you use in your practice and, and why did you choose to use those? So the main tools that we're using at NeuronSync is EEG and eye tracking. We do apply implicit association techniques and we do also apply GSR in certain cases, but our main toolbox has been chosen because we believe in what we've seen from a lot of different validation work is that EEG and eye tracking is really good at understanding and predicting behavior. And the reason why it's good is because it's very quick it's very precise and it's very good to use in certain situations. Of course, here we also have the thing that EEG as a brain scanner, you can't send that to a person in a home and say, put it on, now we can measure your brain. So you can't do large scale quant data studies. But the thing is that with an EEG, you have so much data every second that even 30 participants be, can be called a quantified data. And uh, when we do that, we really understand what's happening in people's brains and what they're looking at at the same time. So the chosen toolbox was iTracking and EEG, but there are many good out there and they can be used very well for various different situations. Exactly. And so like the beauty of that combination is, um, you know, to your point, the EEG is something that it's, it's not like an fMRI, which is giving you snapshots, right? The EEG is something that's continuous. Um, and the eye tracking allows you to time align um, what they're experiencing, you know, cognitively or emotionally with the stimuli that they're looking at at any given moment. That is correct. Yeah. So that's a, that's a terrific, terrific combination. So in, uh, let's talk about your presentation. And because um, there you discussed studies, and I know this is, you know, a lot of studies um, that, that you kind of talked about in two parts. Um, one was advertising effectiveness in different mediums like mobile, print, and TV. Um, and then the other kind of group of studies were shopping studies. Um, I'm, I'm curious, and, and I know this is a little bit of a tangent, but are there, in your opinion, fundamental differences in how you approach consumer versus shopper research? <clears throat> so I would say the toolbox in itself and the protocols that we use are actually very similar. So it means we're still using the same equipment. We're still using the same internal protocols to run these studies, making sure that they're valid, that the way that we use the data, export the data, the way that we do everything is always the same in the protocol. But where things are very different is the way that you design the study. So it means that if you're testing advertising, you of course have to think of many other things than if you're testing a shopper experience. But if you're testing a shopper experience, there are other things that you really need to think about. So it's all about making sure your study design has been very well thought through and that you're keeping the validated methods in, in line for both. 
Yeah, and I'm curious on the shopping study side. You have um, you have those that are shopping for themselves, and then you have those who um, the term I use is proxy shoppers. Mm-hmm. So you know they're shopping on behalf of someone else, and and oftentimes um, you know they're they're fulfilling the requests of the ultimate end user, but other times they're making decisions on behalf of the end user. Um, do you ever look at that group of shoppers or is it, or do you focus primarily on, you know, the primary shopper who's primarily shopping for themselves? So at this point we have actually only been focusing on the primary shoppers, meaning that the, the study purposes and the reason behind those were to look at primary shoppers. So uh, if we got the chance to look at, secondary shoppers or people who shop for others, I definitely think there's a lot of interesting findings in there. Yeah, I think that would be just fascinating to understand, you know, kind of the mechanics of their decision making um, as opposed to, you know, when, when they're making purchases for, for others versus themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, a future opportunity for sure. <laughs> so, um, so let's talk about both of those topics, the advertising effectiveness and, and the shopping. Um, and, and by the way, you know, these were no small um, efforts, right? Because because this took over two years to conduct. Uh, they were conducted, as I understand it, in five countries and on three different continents and amassed literally billions of data points. Is that right? That is completely correct. We are looking at around 3,000 EEG and eye tracking interviews. So this is in-person interviews uh, taken between 60 to 75 minutes each. And here we're looking at having around 15 billion data points, raw data points for those over two years of marketing research. So there's definitely a lot of data going into understanding how do people really consume advertising on various different platforms, as you mentioned in the beginning, on TV, print, and also in the digital newsphere. So you obviously you have some software that helps you Kind of go through the back end uh, analytics in an automated way. Uh, obviously, it's impossible to do this in a manual way. That is completely correct. This has been one of the things that we have developed over the last five years. Has actually been optimizing protocols and being able to script and automate automate things. And I think I think it's it's definitely key for the field and the industry of neuroscience to be able to do that, because having to go through anything like this in a manual way, it would just never happen. Like it it, it would take years. Yeah, and and so I didn't plan to ask you this question, but but to that point, um, when I've done things the manual way, there's there's the need to code events. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's a sign on the shelf and, and they're looking at it and I want to code the fact that there is a sign on the shelf. Um, how does that coding take place when, you, when you're doing this kind of in an automated way? Or is that coding on the, on the setup part and not on the back end analytics part? So that's actually a very good question, Phil. And, and for the coding, depending on the type of study, we're actually still doing manual coding exactly as you said it here. We have just been able to expand that and scale it. So we have many people who have various different uh, protocols in place to to sanity check and ensure that all manual markings are perfectly in place. So what, what we have automated is actually not the coding. What we have automated is from the point of noting whenever the sign is there, whenever someone looked there, anything like that, is to take all of that visual data into a data stream which is huge and then align the eye tracking with the EEG data, plucking out the metrics that we need from the EEG data to be able to analyze that. So it's it's more the process of the data handling and the data pre-processing to the end report. That's what we have automated and that's what would take all too much time to do manually. Um, I, I understand there is a there's an industry that has emerged of people whose job it is to look at various scenes of a street and code whether or not, you know, like all of the events on the street. So mm-hmm. is it a curb? Is it a median? Is it a, is it a pedestrian? Um, is it a street sign? Is it a stoplight? Uh, is it a, is it a, a store? Um, and, and they have to code everything. And, and all of this is the, for the purpose of um, being able to program the AI for self-driving cars. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, the, the cars themselves, they can detect, detect that there are objects 
but but they don't know what those objects are. That has to be programmed. And so, you know, there's this whole industry of people who do that coding. It would be interesting if this uh, if this expands someday to you know to retail environments, so that you know the types of software you have, you wouldn't have to do that coding. Exactly. It would it would it would be pre-coded. Uh, to know what a promotion sign or end cap display uh, looks like. And I would just say that we're not far away from it. I think that Phil, even even for eye tracking and automated coding and everything happening in there, uh, I don't think we're five years away from being able to automate almost everything that's happening there. Um, And uh, yeah, I, I think it's a huge deal for the neuroscience field and especially for the clients that are interested in using that. Oh my gosh, that that's extraordinary! I mean, imagine the the, the time and cost savings um, of, of these things. Exactly. Okay, so let's let's start with the research you did on advertising effectiveness. I I, I love this um, um, because you know at the end of the day, you got to some very specific principles, and and I'll give you a chance to talk about those. But first, you know, what did you send out to set out to learn? You know, what was the objective of your work? Uh, how did you go about learning it, and and what did you take away from it? So I think the the thing is that we have been doing a lot of different advertising work over the last five years, right? So it wasn't really a particular study where we said this is the only thing that we want to learn or this is where we want to go with it. The thing was that we had a lot of different clients who wanted to research different things. And what we did over that period of time was that we started to benchmark everything and put all of the things into a baseline and into a database. And from that database, we have then been able to gather all these thousands of EEG and eye tracking recordings to be able to take out learnings for these specific mediums. So we were actually set out to learn various different things for each of these studies, but overall, you can certainly start to see certain trends. And here we really found specific understandings of how people consume, respond, and look at print. We also understood how does that work on TV? What is it that works better on TV and what doesn't work on TV? And the same goes for the mobile. We understood what is it that we're good at and what is it that we're not good at? One of the things that we really found interesting is, of course, the fact that we still don't know mobile and the digital sphere well enough. There's simply the advertisers are missing out on information for exactly how to do it. And the platforms do not know exactly how to do it. And we don't know exactly how to do it. But we have learned a lot from this where we could see here are some very specific learnings that you can use to be able to optimize for the different platforms. Okay. So um, so tell us about some of the... Um... Uh, some of the metrics that you were looking to um, understand, you know, for for kind of maximum utility are things like exposure and time spent, um, brand building, uh, ability to uh, elicit or convey emotions, um, and same thing for cognitive processing. Between print, TV, and mobile, like what types of things did you learn? The thing is that we've learned that they're quite different and we learned that they're good at various different things. So it means that there's not one medium that rules them all. There's not one medium that can be taken out. Um, I would say that from our understanding and from our learning, we have learned it's not about the medium. It's about how we treat that medium. And it's more about how can we optimize for the medium and how can we use all three mediums in one campaign. So what we really found was that exposure, and that, that was kind of the first thing that we looked at is, of course, how much exposure will people have to these different platforms and, and how well would they be seen or will they be stopped at some point? And here we found that print is, of course, the one that has the hardest time getting exposure because it's tedious, it takes time, it's difficult to get to the, to the uh, consumer. And when it is at the consumer, many of the consumers end up throwing it out before they see it. What we found is on TV is that it has kind of this, I would say, a neutral medium exposure where when people see it, they they stay for it, stay with it longer. But the amount of exposure is, on the other hand, not as much as, for example, mobile. 
because mobile, we have a completely new way of doing it, right? We have uh, cookies. We have all these kind of trackers that make sure that whenever I go into a website and I look at a bed, I will see beds for the next two weeks. And this is, of course, a way that we can force people to be primed a lot more and be exposed a lot more. And this can be seen positively, but also negatively, depending on what it is that you did with your campaign and if you decided to actually optimize it for the platform. You can see on the other hand that the people spend certain amount of times and print and mobile is the ones that people spent the least time with, where people actually spend a little more time with TV. But we've also seen that the multi-screening issue and people start standing up and do other things while they watch TV. So TV is also taking a little hit for the time spent. Interesting. Yeah. And for, for call to action and brand building, we, we found that call to action, print and mobile has a very strong call to action response. That's what we see that people are really interested in going to the next step when they've been on one of those two places. And uh, it, it could be sales taps. It could be anything like that that really works well in a print format. But when we're on TV, we're seeing that TV kind of lacks this and it, it's not good for making people say, oh, there's a website link. I have to go on my PC now and put that into a website. That's not what people end up doing or that's not what the brain is telling us at least. People see this TV information as very different than a direct call to action. And mobile, of course, when you get it and it's right there, it's clickable, you can get directly to the website and almost one click purchase now, that's where you can get really fast paced purchases. But again, if you don't do it right, you will lose out very quickly. And so you know, clearly across print, TV, mobile, if you're a marketer, you're going you're gonna to want to consider how you're going to use these um, in, in order to make sure that you are, uh, you know, if exposure is your goal, then obviously some mediums are better than others. If, if, if you know, having a, an effective call to action is your priority, then, then again, some mediums are more effective than others. So if, if, Mike, if you're a marketer and you want to apply these learnings, what might you do or, or not do for that matter? So I would say that for the three different platforms that we're talking about here on mediums, I would say for print, it's very important that we use clear call to action. This is a place where people really respond well to that. It's important that we make sure that our information is clear. Don't overload people too much. And very important, let's not spend too much time on brand building effects as we have other channels that are actually better at that. When we look at TV, we would say that TV is at this point the strongest brand building and emotional storytelling platform. It is where we see people having a higher effect to brands. It is where we see people having a better storytelling understanding and people are not overloaded with information. They actually really process information on a big TV easily. We would also ensure that you create really clear brand messages when you use TV. Make sure that your brand becomes a part of the message. Don't build emotional storytelling, which completely disconnects your brand, because then you will lose that brand building. And there's, and there's a lot of counterintuitive findings in this, and, and that for me is one of the biggest. Exactly. And it's, it's interesting, right? Because that's what we've seen. If, if you simply build a beautiful story and people say they love it, and that's one of the things, right? That's what we've done so far is that we've asked people. And if you build a beautiful story, people will love it. But that story might not tell that it's your brand. And if that's not the case, then when I'm standing in a store and thinking of that story, I will not get that brand on my top of mind. So we need to make sure that the brand is still something that gets top of mind because that's what ends up being the thing calling for action in the store or online. And again, we also said that for TV, we would say that call to action is something that we should not spend too much energy and time on on TV. Mm -hmm. People simply don't get the motivational factors for going and doing something. And this is completely neurological. When we present hey, go to this website for something on a TV, people don't resonate with it. it. It just doesn't happen. And I don't know if it's because it's simply too much effort to go from one platform to another platform, but at least that's what we're seeing. And finally, for the mobile, I think using mobile for creating call to action and very quick impact is something that really works if we do it right. 
it's important that when we use mobile and we use our digital sphere, it's very important that we think of it as very different from TV. We cannot take a TV ad either 15 or 30 seconds and put it on mobile, not on YouTube, not on Facebook, not on any of them, because it will not work as well. It's not a medium that's made for long sessions. It's a medium that's made for very quick decisions. And we can see that the brain is constantly working much harder when it's on a mobile than when it's on a TV. Also meaning that if we manage to get that message very clearly in there with a short, it's precise, and it's an interesting creative, then people will click it and people will automatically spend more time doing either purchases or any other things of interest. So short messaging, very clear messaging, and visually appealing messaging. That's really what we should use the mobile for. Really interesting. And, and you know, what I like about this is not only does it take each of the mediums and, and discuss their strengths and weaknesses, but you also went on to talk about um, how you might use all three um, and such, such that one can uh, enhance the effect of the other. Um, so that was, that was really, really terrific. So, um, so that's, that's a great summary of the advertising effectiveness work. Now I'd like to talk about the shopper research where you explored the way shoppers navigate um, as well as to make their way around in-store, uh, in-retail environments. Mm -hmm. um, so take us through this work. And, and again, what were your hypotheses? Uh, what methods did you use here? And, um, and, and then ultimately, what did you learn? Yeah. So when we went into the stores, what we did and the reason why we did it was that we wanted to understand for, for the thing is that in stores, we have a hard time tracking people. Of course, through the last five, 10 years, there's become a lot of different trackers that can track through Bluetooth or through video cameras in the store and see where people are walking. But we didn't go there to see where people were walking. We went there to see how people felt while they were walking there. So we wanted to understand what are the emotional and cognitive impact of a store? Every single aisle in the store, how do people respond to those? And when looking at that, we saw certain aisles performing better than others. Of course, we see aisles like very interesting, like candy or anything like that. They perform higher on direct emotional impact. But we did also have some interesting findings about certain other parts of the store, which can be more neutral things that you just need where in some stores they really work and in other stores they do not work on emotional impact. Okay. And one of the things that we found was that there are kind of three different stages of shopping or maybe even four if you want to. The first stage is that you get to the store and we all know this, like we've all been in a store, we all get into a store and let's imagine that it's a store I've never been to before. It could be the same brand as something I've been to before, but this is the first time I go to this specific store. The first thing that happens is a huge overload, like a cognitive brain overload says, I don't know where to go because I don't know the store. I haven't been there many times. I don't know exactly where my products are of interest, meaning that I need to find out where am I and how do I navigate to the specific place. And this was one of the things that we found first was if we don't make it easy for a new or let's say a continuous client to get to the product of interest, then they will buy less. They're simply not interested in buying stuff when they have been overloaded, frustrated, and stressed cognitively. Do you believe that that's because, you know, they, um, they planned in that trip to spend 30 minutes in the store, you know, or roughly thereabouts, and, and because they're not navigating um, efficiently, then they're not using their time effectively and, and basically they run out of, they run out of time and, and, and don't spend as much as they otherwise would if they were more efficient. Or is it more of an emotional consequence that um, you know, by, by not being effortless, uh, it becomes kind of a, a stressful, unpleasant shopping experience and they just want to get out of there? I would say it's definitely the second one because I, even though we put time on our shopping trips, of course that might happen. Um, and and we're, if we're inefficient, then we will not make it to all of our products. But I don't think that's the case in many cases. I think the fact is that what we can see is that a person who has felt cognitive overload at many points in the store have a much more negative emotional 
response to the products of interest when they get to them. And that means that if it's not a product that they really need, they will not buy it. And that's a huge impact on spontaneous shopping, on shopping that, you you know, when you go to a store and you needed five items, you always end up with eight or ten. But those those last three or five items would never be bought if I have not made sure that my customer gets to their products of interest with ease. Got it. So this this first stage of navigation is getting them just even to the right area of the store. Exactly. And that's what we found that many stores have this, I would call it a ceiling signage. They put, a, they could be large stores. It could be Walmart. It could be Lowe's. It could be any kind of store that it's tall brick and mortar. could also be small stores, of course. But they put these ceiling signage very up high, meaning that people have to stand up and look upwards. And what we see is that in the moment that the that the person has to bend back their neck and look upwards, they actually get an automatic cognitive overload. What I believe that could be is because you don't know what's going on around you anymore, and you might be either standing or walking while you're doing it, meaning you have to kind of multitask because it's not in your field of view. Interesting. So what we found was that we do not propose people to put ceiling signs that up high. We propose them to put it lower and very clear. Hmm. So the first thing is, if you want an area to be lit up, make it easy, make it clean, and make it big letters. Don't spend too much time on making it various different colors and putting different words and different signs on it. Just make it clear and easy for the brain to very easily understand, here are my tools, here are my personal care or anything like that. That should be very easy and it should be able to understand it in less than maybe half a second when looking at it. Mm -hmm. Because if that happens, we will suddenly have an ease and a much higher emotional interest when we get to the aisles of interest. What we then found is that when we get to those aisles of interest, when people really find the areas, they're having a problem getting to the product categories of interest. And I don't know, Phil, I'm sure you've been to uh, Target, Walmart, any of these stores. And if you stand at the end of an aisle and you look down that aisle, you can't see what's on that aisle. You can maybe see what kind of product categories are on that aisle, but you, you don't know if your Kellogg's or anything that you need is on that aisle unless it's within the first two meters or something like that. Of course. And that means that we are then again making customers have to overthink the situation to figure out, is that the aisle or should I go to the next aisle and try that aisle? And if I go through a full aisle and come out on the other hand and I haven't found the product category that I needed, then when I go into the second aisle, I will be significantly less interested in products. So that's really what we find that having in-aisle signage is working really well. The problem is that we found that some stores starting putting the in-aisle signage above the actual shelves. And again, we're back to the look up. And people do not like looking up, or the brain at least does not like looking up. So we should keep it in an aisle level, making sure that people can actually see what's on the aisle and make it easy for them to navigate to that point of interest very quickly. Yeah. If we can manage to do that, then we're suddenly in a space or in a place where this person has a much higher interest in spending money because they're emotionally motivated to buy. And, and you know, I, I just to kind of go back to the height issue, um, I, I really applaud you for um, kind of taking a stand on that. Obviously, it's a it's a data driven stand that you're taking. But I found um, I've had similar conclusions when using EEG and eye tracking a combination before. Um, it is just there is the kind of you know the cognitive load that you talked about. Um, I didn't. I, I never really knew the reasons for that, and I love your hypothesis for what may be driving that. But also, the eye tracking data just confirms that you're right. People just aren't looking up. And it's yep. extraordinary how much um, going to a store and, you know, with the task of seeing how many ineffective signs are being used um, and, and you're going to 
have a very long list because you're going to find signs that are way too high. Um, and, and I'm referring to my, my notes here from the conference. I, I like how you say there really should be no more than four to five meters above the floor. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's nice to have a, a kind of a, a principle from which to work from. But you're going to find signage that's you know, way too high for shoppers to even notice. And, and they won't. The eye tracking confirms that. You're going to find signs that even if they do notice, um, there's way too much stuff going on. Um, you know, the, the words aren't clear or the, the images are distracting um, or, or, or don't really effectively communicate, you know, what area am I in in store? So there's a lot of ineffective applications of, of in-store signage. And, you know, there's a lot of dollars being um, inefficiently used that could be, that could really be effectively used if they just had kind of understanding of, of how do I get people to get to the right area of the store, you know, bring them to the aisle in, you know, with, with no effort, with no waste of time and, and no cognitive strain. Tell us also, you know, in the aisle, before we get to the, even the category um, about signage, and, and you talked about the height. But you also talked about, um, you know, the, the, the wording and, and the degree in which um, uh, it should be effortless to process mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. contrasting colors and, and things like that. What, what other things did you find with respect to in-aisle signage? And I would say one of the first things that, are, that is so important about in-aisle signage is to make it clear what is a navigation sign and what is a promotion sign. So the first thing is that uh, we've been to many stores, we've been many places, and sometimes they use navigation signs in the same color as a promotion sign. And the, the problem is now people do not know what is what. And I would, even, I would even say, and I would challenge it so much that I would say it's more important to have navigation signage than having promotion signage. Mm. Because if people really want something from that area, they will see the promotion when they get there if we put it on the actual shelf. We don't need it to have it hanging out as a in-aisle sign. We need them to get to the right product, get to the right product category as easy and as quick as possible because when they're there, they will be more interested. So very clear signage. I would make sure that it's uh, clear letters. It stands out in contrast from the rest of the store or from the aisle in itself making sure that we don't make everything blend in. And I, I know we like the design of having uh, a blue brand Then everything has to be blue within our store. Everything is uh, really blue. And suddenly the blue does not stand out from the blue and people do not know how to use these signs. So again, contrast, as I said, don't use promotions in this in the in this signage of the aisle. Use it rather on the shelf and make very clear vertical signage on the aisle uh, with, with the right wording. Brilliant. Um, you, you know, it's interesting in the work that I've done, we, we learned that shoppers are incredibly, um, incredibly good and, and fast at discerning between a sign that is for marketing purposes versus for navigation purposes. I mean, it's, it's instant. Um, mm-hmm. and there are certain cues that signs will have to indicate to a shopper that you know th- this sign is navigation versus this is this is for marketing, and and I like the way that you distinguish the two because because shoppers distinguish the two, and and if you're trying to be navigation, then um, then you need to look like help, and and exactly. you've got to use the right cues to do that, and and you did a great job of just explaining what those are, uh, but if you're going to be marketing. Um, then you know, don't try to trick people that you're navigating uh, that, that that you look like help. You know, look like marketing, but but be be helpful marketing. Mm-hmm. Um, and and there are you know some design principles that um, that I think similarly apply in terms of contrasting colors and simple words and 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 eye level vertical placement. Um, you know, all, all those design principles help. Um, I believe whether it's navigation or marketing. Um, is, is, is that consistent with what you found? I, I would say so. That's, that's what we have found. We have actually in, in this research, we had, we didn't focus too much on the promotions because, um, the thing was that we wanted to understand how emotionally people are boosting their effects. If getting to a product easier or navigating the store or even being uh, emotionally positive in an aisle and, mm-hmm. 
we didn't look specifically on promotion signage in this case, but there's no doubts that what we have seen from from when looking at it is that very clear signage saying, I am promotion and I'm here to give you an offer is much better than making something that blends in with navigation signage or any of your other signage. Right. Uh, because people will, with contracts differences, with differences in look and feel, people will have an automatic attraction to that differently mm -hmm. than if it wasn't done like that. Mm, okay. All right. So at this point, the, now the shopper made it to the right aisle. They've, they've been able to navigate the aisle and find the right category. Um, and now they're looking at packaging. Uh, what did you learn mm -hmm. about packaging? One of the things that we've seen with, with packaging is that all too much packaging look the same uh, in some aisles. And people have a hard time making very similar packaging stand out if it's not very well branded or very well marketed. So it means that this is really where our first prom like our first practices of doing right marketing comes into place because if you've done your marketing correctly if you've got to top of mind then when people get to that section your chances of being picked is much higher and and that's kind of first part of it but another part is of course to make sure that you connect your packaging to the branding and the marketing that you have been doing and finally, that you also test your packaging, making sure that it does generate those emotional, positive motivation factors that you need. What did you What did you find? I don't know if you could put it in you know percentage terms, but um, how uh, how many brands do that well versus don't do that well? Any, any Did you quantify that or any thoughts on that? We didn't we didn't quantify that, so I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say a percentage number for that. But I, I, I would say that we what we see, at least from people in these shopping experiences, is that they spend too much energy on trying to figure out what to pick. And and that's mainly because um, they have a hard time figure out which one makes more value for me uh, due to the fact that we have either not done branding correctly or marketing correctly, or if we blend in with the rest of, of the shelf. Ah, got it. All right. So, so obviously you need to be seen, right? Because that's, that's kind of job number one. Mm -hmm. Um, and then you talked about connecting the packaging to the branding, um, mm -hmm. for that, uh, congruity between, you know, what people kind of have in their minds before they go in the store and what they experience in the store. Um, but you also talked about, um, designs that help simplify the choice. Mm -hmm. um, what, um, tell us more about that. So again, about designs that make you simplify, simplify the choice is when you stand there in front of the shelf and you need to make a choice, you need to look at something that is of interest. Of course, you need a product in this category. You've decided that because it's a part of your interest list. But when you stand in front of those, you need to make sure that your package sends very, very clear information that is needed. The first thing is, of course, as you said, and from what I said before, is, is that you're connecting the package to the brand, making sure that your color, your brand, and your marketing stands out. But also when you are in that moment of deciding, we need to play on all emotional factors. I know that many brands have started thinking about the cognitive factor of having to think about what's in the product and what's not in the product is more important. And those, of course, guidance features. And, and I'm not saying we should take it out at all because that has worked a lot for many brands to do that. But sometimes it's actually about thinking that less is more and we can overload the customer with too many small information parts rather than making it clear what is in this package and why do you need that package. Yeah, and that's I think that's one of the contributions, uh, one of the big contributions from neuroscience is helping us understand that emotions aren't always um, generated or, or uh, you're triggered by putting puppy dogs and babies or, or pleasing colors on a package. Um, but often just in, in, the, in the amount of copy that you put mm -hmm. on the package and how many selling points you try to squeeze on that you know, small piece of real estate, that, um, 
that that will also have emotional consequences to it as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really interesting. So, um, so again, from an activation point, Mike, if if you're a marketer and, and you're thinking about designing for in store, what like what are kind of the big takeaways that that they should they should take from the work that you did there? What, one of the things that we have found especially with this is to make sure that we think about stuff in a way from the consumer's perspective and not from the store's perspective. Uh, Many times we've seen stores go in and say, we want to put things in brands. So one brand has one section and all things from what that one brand is in one section. And that could be good for some brands. But for other brands or other products, we actually need to put it in product line instead of product brand. And to make the navigation much easier. So I would say that we need to think of it in a way that what is it that consumer uses this product for? Is it an everyday use case? So is it something I will buy more often? Or is it something that is more specific and more uh, brand driven? One example of that is actually, and this is not from FMCG, but from, from hardware, we have seen that um, there was a store that had light bulbs and I know light bulbs is tedious, but light bulbs, they had them standing in brands. And today we have 50 different types of light bulbs. We have saving bulbs. We have green, red, blue. We have, we have all kind of light bulbs. And first of all, we don't even know which one we need, but when we then put it into brand, then we have a, an extremely hard time comparing the same light bulb from brand X to brand Y, because we now need to pick the brand X light bulb up, walk all the way down to brand Y to compare it. And of course, with light bulbs, it's much more about pricing, about that and about the length of of durability. Right. And those three things needed to be very clear. So what we did instead was to do it in product line. So now all the same light bulbs with several different brands were in the same section. And we suddenly found that people spend half the time to find the light bulb of interest, but a much higher emotional impact when picking that product. So it really means that we need to think of the fact, how do people use this and which category is it? How can we optimize it for the consumer? That's a, that's a wonderful example. Um, and, and really stresses the importance of understanding, you know, what is your consumer's decision heart hierarchy when they're going through that navigation uh, process. Um, and it, it's not always, you know, what the market structure will suggest. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's a navigation structure which, which may be independent of the market structure. And, uh, and, th- and that, that example uh, illustrates that beautifully. So this is really about bricks and mortar, or at least what we've talked about to this point. Are there any parallels that you can draw for online marketers? Um, in other words, can, can you apply any of your in-store navigation lessons to online environments? I think, I think it's, it's actually quite similar, to be honest, for, for the online e-commerce space, is that we, we started at some point where we tried to give people product categories in the top, different kind of sections, everything like that. On the side, you could choose specifics, you could go into, you know, there was so much different information and you had a tyranny of choice, really. You had too many options to try to get to the product of interest and people started using the search bar instead. What we need to do is really the same. We need to make sure that we get people to the product category of interest the easiest way possible and that that could be either through making the categories much more salient much more easy to divide or by choosing to to not use the sidebar with with selections and i know a lot of different stores stop doing that uh you are online e-commerce stop doing the side uh, bars with either specific selections but that's the first Make sure that we make it easy for people. And sometimes it's not always about giving people as many options as possible, but rather making sure that they get to a category of interest before they lose their interest. Yeah. And, and to build on that point, you know, it, it is important to give them some filtering opportunities um, sure. kind of on, the, on the left-hand bar. Um, and then it's also important 
to have the right filtering criteria. Um, I was looking on a, a pet food manufacturer's website and they didn't have, you know, they're, they're like very operationally driven um, selections. Um, I, don't, I don't remember kind of exactly what they were, but what they didn't have was, um, you know, how old is my dog? Is it a puppy? Yep. Is, is it kind of, you know, in its teen years or is it, or is it an adult? Um, because for me as a, as a shopper, that, that was kind of important criteria or, or for lo- small dogs versus large dogs, things like that. And, uh, and those, those selection criteria weren't there. And so I was like, well, this, you know, isn't, is intended to be helpful, but, but it's not, mm-hmm. um, very cool. Yeah. And I liked in your presentation, you kind of talked about, uh, you know, about helping shoppers navigate at the entrance is similar to helping them navigate at your website's landing page. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, the navigating the stores is kind of like helping them find the right page, you know, within your website. And so I, I love the parallels that you, you drew there. Um, so you really can learn about one environment and apply in, in both environments because the lessons are, are essentially the same, you know, the, the tactics will differ of course, but, but the, the, the design principles are, are, are shared. Completely agreed. So, um, so we've talked about a lot of things today, Mike, um, is there anything that you think it's important for us to, to talk about? Um, you know, with regard to, you know, those studies that you've done that we, that we should mention? As you know, we're, we're still going on hard and we will, uh, still be doing a lot of collection of new data in the new year. So hopefully we will come back with even more knowledge in, in the near future. And, and I know you're working on other things as well. So, you know, if, if people want to learn more about this research or, or your company, Neurons Inc., um, or the other work that you're doing, Mike, what's the best way for people to reach you? So I think I think the best way to reach us is either by going to our website, uh, which is www.neuronsinc.com, or to reach out just to me uh, at mike at neuronsinc.com. And I'd be happy to answer any questions that might be for the research we've done so far, but also any kind of other questions for other areas of interest. Excellent. Well, well, again, your presentations were terrific. Um, thanks for giving us um, even more information. Uh, this is very helpful. And, uh, and you know, as, as usual, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. So, uh, so thanks for taking the time. I, I know you're really, really busy. Um, but, but to, you know, just take a moment to talk to us about your work using neuroscience. This is very, very helpful. And, and again, it's a new area for, for many, but, but something that, you know, if you're, if you're a marketer uh, or a neuromarketer or a consumer or shopper insight person, um, you have to know about this. Um, so thank you again very much. I uh, really appreciate you being here. Of course, Phil. And thank you very much for, for taking the time to ask the questions and get more knowledge out there. Uh, I think it's an extremely interesting field and there's just so much to learn. Absolutely. It's been my pleasure. Thanks again, Mike. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and I'd like to give a special thanks to Decision Breakers for making today's episode possible. We'll see you next time on Shoppernomics. Shoppernomics.